As we delve into this infamous murder case and the suspects, it's important to remain focused on the man at the heart of this story. Who was Don Bowles? What was he investigating at the time of the bombing? And what stories had he written that could place him in harm's way? Let's turn back the clock to Don Bowles' origin story. Bowles grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey and graduated from Teaneck High School in 1946. Both his father and grandfather had a newspaper career, which he followed by becoming the editor of the campus newspaper at Beloit College. Bowles eventually graduated from Beloit College with a degree in government and received a President's Award for personal achievement. Bowles enlisted in the United States Army after graduating from college and was assigned to the aircraft unit during the Korean War. Bowles decided to join the Associated Press as a sports editor and rewriter in New York, New Jersey, and Kentucky after serving for a short time. In 1962, he was eventually hired by the Arizona Republic newspaper, where he quickly found a passion for investigative journalism and built quite a reputation. While he was beloved by his readers, the targets of his stories didn't always feel the same way. Jana Bombersbach, now a renowned author, who is assisting our reinvestigation into the murder, joined the Arizona Republic in the early 1970s and would become close friends with Don Bowles and his wife, Rosalie. Here, she discusses Don's reputation as well as the crowd he mingled with to investigate his stories. And it was fear and respect. I mean, he did not suffer fools. Mm-hmm. You could not, you could not pull the wool over his eyes. I don't think. I mean, he had a reputation. It's like when they say sixty minutes is on the, in the in the outside room and everybody just faints. You know, it was that was that Don would become the closest person I've ever known in Phoenix that would do that to you. Um, he, you know, he he wasn't a he wasn't a t- attached to the cops. He didn't. He didn't necessarily trust all the cops, um, and we would find that for good reason. Um, he didn't trust lawyers. Um, he he wasn't he wasn't a patsy for anybody. He wasn't like uh, um, he he could uh, he knew tons of people. I mean, he knew as many mob people as anybody in the world knew. You know, he knew all the guys who knew the mob people, which were his major sources. Yeah. So he's dealing with a pretty rough crowd. I mean, he's not hanging around with the mayor and the governor. I mean, he's hanging around with, you know, ne'er-do-wells and, yeah. and people that are, you know, making their living in, in weird ways. So, um, and he was more comfortable with them, I think, than with anybody else. Um, um, I don't I'm no, I don't think the Republic, like, ever t- crowded him out to, like, cocktail parties and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I think that, that there were other people in the newsroom that they thought were more acceptable for those kinds of things. But he... Um, uh, when he when he went after you, when he started looking at you, you pretty well knew there was not going to be a stone left unturned. And that's what scared so many people because there were too many secrets hun- under too many stones. Bowles authored hundreds of stories for the Republic as an investigative reporter, criticizing the deterioration of fundamental liberties in the Valley of the Sun. For his investigations of bribery and other irregularities in the state tax and company commissioners, he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in 65. Bowles began reporting on influence peddling, bribery, land swindles, and the mafia. 
the Republic's first big effort to investigate land fraud in Arizona was a bold series published in 1967. He wrote extensively about Emprise Corporation, a Buffalo-based firm, that along with the Funk family of Arizona, controlled the state's dog racetrack in the late 60s and early 70s. His investigative series on organized crime in Arizona is still talked about today. Some of Bowles' earliest investigative work focused on land fraud in Arizona. In the late 60s, Bowles detected a real estate swindle in Prescott Valley, Arizona. It resulted in the incarceration of men, the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars to investors, and the possession of almost worthless parcels in the high desert by many retirees and veterans. He linked dozens of land deals to organizations selling land that was practically uninhabitable, lacking water, roads, amenities. They would sell the same lot to many customers and sell the property's mortgages to various lenders. Ned Warren was Bowles' main suspect in this investigation. Warren was the man behind the fraud scheme in Arizona, and Bowles' reporting ultimately caused charges filed against Warren that led to a conviction and trial in late 1970. Ned Warren, an Arizona real estate magnate who has been under investigation here for land fraud. Both M. Prize and Ned Warren have been under close scrutiny by grand juries. It was M. Prize money which bailed out an Arizona firm controlling six dog racing tracks. And in 1972, Emprise was convicted of conspiring to hide ties to underworld gambling interests in Nevada. Warren's name has been linked with organized crime for years. Edward Lazar, president of several of Warren's real estate companies, was gunned down last year, one day before he was to testify to a grand jury investigating his boss. And it was at Warren's request, say some sources, that Senator Barry Goldwater and Congressman Sam Steiger wrote letters back in 1971 endorsing the sale of nearly worthless Arizona land to U.S. servicemen. The scheme was later found to be illegal. Both Arizona Republicans say they had no idea the land deal wasn't legitimate. Warren moved to Phoenix with his family in a budget of less than a thousand in 1961. He was living a very lavish lifestyle in a Paradise Valley mansion, driving a Rolls Royce, and doing business with the Democratic Party chairman and other Phoenix elite members a few years later. He began by selling lots for other companies before swiftly forming his own. Warren was sued by a firm for stealing leads for land sales. It was Bowles' investigation into Warren and land fraud that connected him with Don Devereaux, a community organizer turned reporter who was conducting his own investigation on a dubious land development in Santa Fe, New Mexico. As an organizer, I increasingly became a journalist, digging into the, the, uh, the workings of this land development operation. And the general manager was based in Phoenix at the time, a guy named Irv Jennings. And, uh, uh, and, and as a consequence, it, it smelled like it could be mobbed up in some capacity. And uh, because it was in Phoenix and I was in Santa Fe, I got a hold of a Phoenix reporter named Don Bowles, who had done a lot of work on land fraud in Arizona at the time. And uh, this was in the early 70s, and Don helped me uh, gradually develop the information 
that this land development in New Mexico was actually an Ed Warren operation. Was Ed it? Warren was sort of the, the czar of land fraud in Arizona at that time and was branching out into <laughs> New Mexico without anybody's knowledge. And the, the BIA, who, which is supposed to represent the, the Pueblo, uh, had not really vetted the subcontracts of the developer and didn't realize that he was basically dealing with uh, Ned Warren for marketing and bookkeeping and all that kind of stuff. And Don Bowles had helped me a great deal in the, the Phoenix end of this investigation. I'd come over a few times to work with him and meet him and everything, but he did a lot of the work here just out of his head. He knew he knew from addresses, what, what addresses in Phoenix were Warren-related addresses. And just a lot of things he knew from experience uh, made it possible for us to nail this thing down. While organized crime played a role in a number of his investigations, Bowles was arguably best known for exposing the mafia's invasion of Arizona in a series called The Menace Within. The investigative series ran over 10 days in October of 1970 and attracted a lot of attention. Bowles received around 100 phone calls and the series spurred the Arizona Attorney General's office to announce the formation of an organized crime task force following his stories. Don published uh, that Menace Within series of articles, and it was uh, the first really comprehensive look at the movement of Chicago mob people primarily into the Phoenix area at that time. It had been going on for a while, but it had not really been noticed by very many people before Don began to understand it was really a serious kind of business. Uh, the Chicago mob, like a, lot, like a lot of populations, was a growing population of mob people, and they needed to colonize. I mean, it's like, you know, like people need to colonize new places to grow. And so they began drifting out here in, in sizable numbers. Uh, two of the key arrivals were Pauli Shiro and uh, Tony Spilatro. Came out about the same time in the late 1960s. Uh, both major guys in Chicago. Uh, Spilatro went to Vegas ultimately to run Vegas for Chicago. But Don picked up on all of that fairly comprehensively. The published stories by Bowles caught the attention of Sam Steiger, a congressman who represented Prescott, a city north of Phoenix. Steiger was a Republican who used his power to testify against Emprise due to his concerns. He traveled down to New Mexico and testified in front of racing officials who were considering granting a permit to Emprise. But Steiger told them they had ties to La Cosa Nostra. The Funks became aware of all of the scrutiny of their operation and wanted both Bowles and Steiger to stop. The Funk family believed Bowles and Steiger were on a pursuit together and wanted more than the truth. They believed they wanted money. George Johnson, a childhood friend of Bradley Funk, was hired to investigate both Bowles and Steiger. Johnson was able to obtain information such as Bowles' bank and phone records and eventually got a call from a mutual friend suggesting wiretapping phones. Uh, George Johnson was not a licensed PI. He was somebody Bradley had known briefly when they both went to Brown Academy briefly in, in San Diego. Uh, but he was just a guy around town who was capable of you know, doing dirty tricks kind of stuff and got the job and uh, proceeded to do three things regarding Don Bowles. He, he arranged to get Don Bowles banking records he arranged to get Don Bowles uh, telephone, home uh, telephone records with long distance call records and all that stuff. And he evidently wiretapped Bowles and Steiger and maybe a few other people uh, through a fellow named Carl Morton. 
uh, who was an, another player in town, who ran a wiretap crew. They placed several taps on several phones, including the homes of Bowles, Steiger's office, the office of Steiger's assistant, the chairman of the Racing Commission, and a Maricopa County supervisor. Johnson became aware that Steiger and Bowles were not engaged in the conspiracy, but knew he was unable to get out of his deal with the Funks, and eventually told Steiger what was going on. In a scene out of all the president's men, Steiger and Johnson set a late-night meeting with Bowles in an out-of-the-way hotel room to inform him of the wiretaps. Bowles, once he was convinced of the authenticity of Johnson's story, contacted both the Republic and the FBI regarding the funk surveillance of him. Sources told Bowles that the wiretapping charges were still being investigated by federal officials, but authorities seemed to be in no rush. Things would get much nastier between the parties after the Arizona Republic ran a story regarding the alleged wiretapping of a congressman and investigative reporter. Here, once again, is Arizona Republic reporter Richard Ruelas. The Funk family wanted to discredit him. So they wanted to follow him around, listen to his phone calls. They, of course, denied all of this, but they wanted to get something on Bowles to discredit him as a reporter, make it so that people didn't believe what he was saying about them. Like his bank statements and his, um, his phone calls. They uh, were looking for dirt on Bowles. That way they could either take it to the newspaper, his bosses at the newspaper, or expose it to the public at large and say, look, he's a bad guy. Don't believe the stuff he writes. That, the first tape I pulled out of that box happened to be uh, Bowles and his reporting partner, Dom Frasca, talking about the wiretapping, as it were. Uh, just out of coincidence, that first conversation I, I hear is first Dom Frasca talking about uh of possible, yeah, that first conversation is Dom Frasca talking to someone and saying, I believe that Bowles was wiretapped because uh, the guy was describing a conversation that I had had with Bowles that there was no way he could have known about. It was a story that I hadn't reported. And then the second conversation is Bowles talking about being wiretapped. So early on, I'm hearing Bowles talk about being wiretapped and I'm realizing this really got to him. The idea that someone came to him and said, I was paid by the people that control the racetracks in town. I was paid by them to wiretap your home. That stuck in his craw for a while. And he wanted them to pay. And I didn't realize until listening to these tapes and, and going through the, the stories and the back and forth lawsuits how much this altered the course of his life. The Funks took action in November of 70, filing a lawsuit against Phoenix Newspapers, the publishing firm of the Arizona Republic, and Don Bowles himself for $20 million. Bowles took the initiative in March of 71, when there was still no charges or investigations on the horizon. He filed a countersuit, accusing the Funks and Emprise of invading his privacy on purpose, he also sued Arizona Financial. 
for disclosing his bank records, as well as Mountain Bell, the phone company, for failing to keep his call documents private. Bowles and his wife sought $200,000 in damages, as well as $2 million in punitive damages. In the middle of an increasingly nasty lawsuit, Bowles, Steiger, and George Johnson were summoned to the nation's capital to testify before congressional hearings on organized crime and sports. The series of highly publicized hearings focused on mafia ties to horse racing and other sports. When Don testified before a congressional subcommittee back about 1970 on that topic, the state treasurer also testified as a witness before that body. And, and one of the curiosities was that when the tracks periodically sold to new owners in Arizona, they sold for more money than they seemed to be worth on the basis of their declared income. Mm -hmm. In other words, they were, they were being sold for more money than they were paying taxes on, <laughs> which would indicate that some of that money was disappearing right. without being reported for tax purposes which is a trademark signature of uh, a mob having a, a skim operation going on at that kind of business. And the dog tracks were easy to skim because they were a high cash flow operation from gambling and concessions and everything else and a lot of cash involved. Uh, so Don was pretty convinced that the mob here, Bonanno and company were, were partners in that operation. And, and he was, you know, he was getting into it pretty, pretty seriously at that time. The wiretapping case would continue to haunt Bowles as he worked on investigations into M-Prize, land fraud, and the Funks. After a hush-hush settlement between his bosses at the Arizona Republic and the Funks, Bowles was removed from the investigative beat and prohibited from continuing the newspaper's investigation into the Funks and dog racing. Bowles, on the other hand, continued his investigation in private. It was settled out of court in 73 for reasons that are interesting. And uh, Don was transferred from investigative journalism beat to covering the state capitol and moved to the state capitol press room and told not to work on the function enterprise anymore. And uh, immediately, quietly continued to do exactly that. According to some former colleagues, Bowles seemed to grow dissatisfied with his job in late 1975 and had requested to be removed from the investigative beat, but that was not the case. The Arizona Republic had assigned Bowles to the state legislative beat after his research on organized crime had made him the most celebrated investigative reporter in the state. It had also made him a target. Don Bowles eventually transitioned from the investigative beat to the state legislature, despite suggestions that Bowles was withdrawing from investigative work. He was still hungry for it. On the side, Bowles continued working with a close friend and confidant, Tom Sanford, who served as Bowles' personal editor at the Republic. Even though Bowles was working on investigative work with Sanford while also working for the state legislature, he became dissatisfied with his bosses. Bowles continued to develop sources on the funks, emprise, and dog racing. Really, he became... Ahab to the, the funk operation as the great white whale mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and chased it unrelentingly right up to the point of his death. Uh, I mean, really with a, with a, with a grand obsession. Uh, it was the single thing among all the stuff he was working on that he was not about to put aside for any reason at all. 
even though he was ordered to quit doing it in 1973 when that lawsuit was settled out of court. Right. He went right on doing it with the help of his, of his editor, Tom Sanford. Bowles had given up investigative reporting eight months ago, saying the work was too frustrating. There had been threats on his life. But a telephone call lured him here to the Hotel Clarendon June 2nd. An informant had promised to meet him here with information he claimed linked Senator Barry Goldwater and Congressman Sam Steiger to an Arizona land fraud scheme. But the man never arrived. On the morning of June 2nd, 1976, Don Bowles left his post covering the state legislator to meet John Harvey Adamson at the Clarendon Hotel. He left a note on his desk that said, I've gone to meet that guy with the information on Steiger at the Clarendon house. Bowles was informed by Adamson that he had evidence of land fraud involving Barry Goldwater, Harry Rosenzweig, Sam Steiger, and Kemper Marley. Little did Bowles know he was not meeting with an informant. It was a setup. Bowles parked his 1976 Datsun 710 in the hotel parking lot and went straight to the hotel lobby to meet Adamson. A dynamite bomb had been planted beneath the driver's side of Bowles' new automobile. After around 15 minutes, the hotel received a phone call from Adamson, who requested to speak with Bowles. He indicated he couldn't meet with Bowles that day. And Bowles returned to the parking lot, started his car, and began backing out of the spot. An explosion erupted beneath Bowles' car. The blast blew a two-foot hole in the floor beneath the driver's seat. An enormous cloud of white smoke filled the air from the wrecked Datsun, shattering the windows of neighboring cars. Don Bowles fell out onto the street when the explosion broke open the driver's side door. As they waited for the ambulance to arrive, a nearby witness came to Bowles' rescue. A man named Lonnie Ree took off his belt and put it around Bowles' right thigh as a tourniquet. As Bowles lay face down on the pavement, a small crowd gathered around him. Phoenix police say Bowles took a telephone call in the lobby of the Hotel Clarendon and when he had completed it, returned to his car. It was at that point an explosion rocked the vehicle with bowls in it, shattering windows on three hotel floors. It appears that he was backing out of a parking space when the explosion occurred. And right at this time, we don't have, uh, it's a little too premature for the bomb and arson detail to determine if uh, the type of explosive that was used or the type of device. Where was it located in the car? I don't know that yet. I'll have to talk with the bomb and arson people first. Uh, it, it would appear at this point that it was underneath the car. We saw some smoke when I came out of the building where I'm working here. And I saw some smoke, ran over there, and the man was laying outside his car. I saw that his legs were torn, and I went over and took my belt off and applied a tourniquet, got another belt, and applied a tourniquet on the other leg. I was more concerned about his legs and his bleeding than I was about what he was saying. So I don't know too much about that. Could you pick up anything that he had said? Only a few isolated things, but mostly I was more concerned about his legs because they were quite damaged. What, what might those isolated things, can you remember what those were? Uh, what I heard doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What did you hear? I'd rather not say. 
Police say Bowles reportedly told a blonde-haired woman who came to his aid, so-and-so did it, but just who that is wasn't released by police. After onlookers and news media cleared the area, Phoenix Police homicide, bomb and arson squads, and officials from the United States Treasury Department began combing the parking lot and the surrounding area for clues that would tell what kind of explosive device was used. Bowles was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital and listed in very serious condition. Little did Bowles realize that those famous last words he was able to mutter, they finally got me, the mafia, emprise, fine John Adamson, would light the flame of his story that still burns to this day 50 years later.